good to be together. Uh, good to remember the Lord. And so now we turn to his word. My intention this morning is to speak from Matthew chapter 6. Um, back in February. Thanks. Is that a bit better now? Uh, back in February of this year, at one of our Wednesday night meetings, I, I began to speak about the Lord's Prayer. And on that occasion, I spoke on the opening words of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in Heaven. And I spoke about the importance of considering the fatherhood of God, thinking about how he is in heaven and transcendent and glorious. And then spoke about the importance of the Lord's Prayer as a whole and thinking about it precisely because it was the way that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It's the way he instructs us to pray, so it's really very important. Um, this morning then, I just want to pick up where I left off. I've got an opportunity to do that, so that's what I'm going to do. And our intention isn't to recommence consecutive teaching through a book of the Bible until about September, precisely because August, July, August is usually a time when people get holidays. So if you can manage to squeeze in a holiday, I suppose it's a good thing to try and do. So I know that some people will be away at different points. So in September, we'll recommence our consecutive teaching. So then uh, I've got the opportunity this morning to actually look again at the next part of the Lord's Prayer and pick up where we left off. So let's read from Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read it uh, from verse 9. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. And the Lord Jesus says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. And many manuscripts end the reading there. Now the words that we're going to think about this morning form the first request of this prayer where the Lord Jesus tells us to say hallowed be your name and given that they're the first request of the prayer given that these are right at the very front of the prayer the Lord Jesus is telling us in essence that this should be at the forefront of our minds if not the actual words that we say. So given that these are really important words, it's important to understand exactly what they mean so that we might be able to pray them rightly. And it's perhaps a bit unfortunate that the way these words are commonly translated in most um, translations, ancient and modern, are in rather archaic language, which sometimes we don't fully grasp. And if you asked many people, what does it mean, hallowed be thy name, they might be hard-pressed to actually articulate exactly what that means, even if they might be able to get the gist of it. Now, we get the gist that it means something along the lines of we want God's name to be honoured, but what exactly does it mean to ask for God's name to be hallowed. 
Certainly I can't remember the last time I used that word hallowed in any other context apart from this prayer. So what exactly does it mean? Well, this word hallow simply means to make holy. I suppose a more common word that we would usually use is sanctify. We talk about someone being sanctified. That is the same idea as someone being hallowed. And so we're asking in these words that God's name be sanctified or made holy. But I think we, can, we want to press further and say, what exactly does this mean? What exactly does it mean when we talk about God's name that we want to be hallowed or made holy? And I think in this context, it refers more or less to God's character and reputation. You remember in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, it says that a good name is to be chosen more than riches. And we understand by that that what it's saying is that it's far better to have a good character and reputation than it is to have any kind of riches or money. And similarly, when we talk about God's name in the Lord's Prayer, we're talking about his character and reputation. We want it to be sanctified or made holy. But I suppose even that can be misunderstood in many ways because when we're asking for God's character his reputation to be sanctified, we're not asking God, in his essence, to become more holy. Because he is completely holy, is perfectly holy. So it means something slightly different than what we would say if I was praying, for example, for you to be sanctified. I was, if I was praying for any one of us to be sanctified, the meaning usually is something along the lines of, I want you to become increasingly holy in, in your lifestyle and in, in your relationship with God. But when we pray for God's name to be sanctified, we clearly don't mean that because God is perfectly holy. So what we mean by it then is that we want... God's character and reputation to be seen as holy. We want him to be seen for as glorious as he truly is. We want him to have a reputation for his holiness. And so in short then, at the very forefront of our prayers, the Lord Jesus wants us to have this concern that God's character be seen as holy. But still we want to press further in these words and say, well, what does it mean holy? What does it mean that we want God to be seen as holy. But to put it simply, what we can say is that holiness refers to all that distinguishes God as God, all that sets him apart from everything else that isn't God, all that is the defining features of God um, is God's holiness. So when the seraphs in heaven cry, holy, 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 what they're doing is they're praising God for all that he is. They're praising God for his godness, uh, for want of a better word. And so what the Lord Jesus is saying is that in our prayers we should be praying first and foremost that God's name be recognized as holy, that he be recognized as glorious in all that he is, that he be recognized for all of his true worth. And so this is the preeminent point of our prayers then, that we seek God to be recognised for all that he is. Now, in every period of history, people's reputations are important. But we've seen it especially in recent days, I suppose, where people's reputations, good names have been tarnished and people have been held in scorn. So we look at 
Bristol, for example. Edward Colston, the famous 18th century trader, once had a reputation for being a great philanthropist. He built hospitals, houses for the poor. He, he donated money to churches and he did many very good things. And such was his influence in the community at Bristol that his name adorned many buildings and they even erected a statue to him to, to commemorate all the good that Edward Colston <coughs> excuse me, had done. And in doing so, where he got his money from, the slave trade was conveniently passed over until recently when the source of his money, the slave trade, came to people's attention. And as a result of that, Edward Colston's reputation began to just fall into tatters. And only a month or so ago, the statue of Colston that was in Bristol was torn down and unceremoniously dumped in the harbour. Similarly, the name of Winston Churchill once, was once held in such high regard throughout the country that people would scarcely um, dare to say anything against Winston Churchill. He was the one that led the country to victory in the Second World War. But in recent months, the statue of Churchill in London was daubed with graffiti and people wrote, Churchill was a racist. And sure enough, you go and look at some of the things Churchill said about different ethnicities and nations, and you'll be scandalized by some of the awful things that he said. And so his name was scorned by many. And I could list many other people, even people like Gandhi, whose names have been brought into disrepute in recent days. But in almost every case, people have risen to defend the reputation of these people and say that actually these people have a good name and we should preserve their good name. In, in Churchill's case in particular, many people rose to defend his name and the graffiti was duly removed and boards were put up around his statue in order to preserve the good name and memory of Winston Churchill. People spoke in horror at how his name could be held in such um, disrepute. Now, it isn't for us as Christians to be too concerned what people think about mere mortals. We, of all people, should recognise that even the greatest people in this world are stained by dark sins, even in our own lives. If everybody knew the, the sins that we have committed, we would be deeply ashamed. We recognise that we are sinful. But what the Lord Jesus tells us is that in our prayers and consequently in our lives, we should be deeply concerned about not the names of people in this world, but God's name. We should be deeply concerned that God's name is dishonoured. And if people around us in the world are concerned about the reputation of historical figures and their own reputations and their heroes, how much more deeply should we be concerned as God's children about the reputation of our Father? As his children, his reputation should be our central concern. It should be the one thing that drives us in life. And the reason that the Lord Jesus asks us to pray this is precisely because God's name is dishonoured. God's name is not hallowed by all people throughout the world. In fact, God's name is treated with contempt and is regularly blasphemed. And we all saw what they, what they did to the statue of Edward Colston when they dragged it through the streets and dumped it into Bristol Harbour. But God's name has been treated with 
even greater contempt. God's name has been scorned in a way which is simply unimaginable. And it all started when Adam and Eve believed the lie of the serpent who came to them and insinuated to them that God was not good because he was withholding from them the tree of knowledge and good and evil. He said that God knows in the day when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he was saying that God isn't really good. God's holding something back from you. And so he was staining God's character. And by Adam and Eve believing that lie, they too brought God's name into disrepute. And from that point onwards, every single human being, every single one of us born into sin in this world have had as their aim to bring God's name into disrepute. That's what we want to do. We don't love God when we come into the world. We disregard God. We blaspheme his name and we hold his name in disregard. We see him as less than holy, less than the glorious God that he truly is. And so in God's redemptive purposes, one of the very first things that God did was God took a man called Abraham and told Abraham that he was going to form a nation from him. And sure enough, God brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt and brought that group of people to him at Mount Sinai, where he constituted them as a nation, and he said to them in Exodus chapter 19, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so what God is saying is he's going to make a people, and they're going to be holy, And so that their holiness is going to display the holiness of God. So that all of the world would be able to look upon this people and see by their morality, see by their laws, see by their way of life, see by their worship, what the character of God is like. They might not be able to see God in heaven, but they would be able to see a nation on earth that was characterized by holiness And their very existence and way of life would then be part of the way that God was going to undo the effects of the fall by restoring the holiness of his name. But sadly, the people of Israel failed in their responsibility to shine God's character to the nations round about them. And as a result, God could then say to them, Uh, Romans chapter 2 verse 24, that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So rather than God's reputation being enhanced because of the people and their holiness, actually God's name was blasphemed because the people were not holy. They caused God's name to be blasphemed. But God would not allow his name to be dishonored in this way. And so what God did was he himself came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, to display his holiness. There was no one so holy as the Lord Jesus was. He was the perfect holiness of God in full display for all of the world to see. And every single one of his deeds and actions and thoughts, everything that he did, demonstrated the holiness of God. His love, his compassion, 
His truth, his mercy, his justice, his purity, all of it combines to display what God is really like. It combines to display the holiness of God. And so at the end of his life, in John chapter 17 and verse 4, words that we've considered frequently in recent weeks, the Lord Jesus prays to his Father and says, I glorified you on earth, having finished the work, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ comes to the end of his life and he can say, that he has finished, he has accomplished God's work and thus has glorified God. He has displayed God's holiness. And ultimately that comes to its pinnacle at the cross where the Lord Jesus displays the love and justice of God in ways which had never been displayed before. God's love and forgiveness and his justice and righteousness all combined together at the cross where the Lord Jesus takes upon himself our guilt and in taking upon himself our guilt satisfies God's justice so that God can then pour forgiveness and love out towards us while still maintaining his righteous standards. And as a result of that, the Lord Jesus can write over his entire life, I glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you gave me today. In other words, he hallowed God's name on earth. He let people see the full magnificence of God's character. And so as a direct consequence of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in his holiness, we too have been made holy through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been brought into this close relationship that we've been rejoicing in this morning, this close relationship with God whereby we're united to Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we are holy. And so in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter says, in words reminiscent of what God spoke to the nation of Israel, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, What's the purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we see that God is making us a holy people so that we might proclaim to the world around us the excellencies of God's character, so that we might hallow God's name. And so we've got this tremendous responsibility then to hallow God's name, to make God's name be seen as holy and glorious in all that we do. What Adam had failed to do, what Israel had failed to do, the Lord Jesus Christ did and is doing through us in the world today displaying the beauty of God's holy character. So what it means then is that when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're addressing directly the problem that faces humanity, that God's name has been despised by us. And so we pray that God's name would be hallowed. And when we pray that God's name be hallowed, we're placing ourselves as those who have been brought into relationship with God and thus know what God is truly like. Only those who really know what God is like can ask that God's name be hallowed. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're acknowledging that God has chosen us to be the primary means by which he displays his holiness to a watching world. 
And so these are very weighty words to pray. These are words that are asking God to work through us to display his holiness. They're asking God to not do something apart from us or disconnected from us, as if God would hallow his name in some way that ignores our role in that. No, when we pray these words, we're asking God to work through us to display his holiness to the world around us. And that is an incredibly weighty thing to pray for, that God would be revealed through us. But practically speaking then, what kinds of things are we asking God to do to display his holiness? What kinds of things that taking place in our lives will make people see the true character and worth of God? Well, let me name five things and just briefly comment on each of them. Um, They're not exhaustive by any means, but that each of them are crucial ways by which we hallow God's name in our lives. Firstly, we must speak highly of God. Secondly, we must worship God. Thirdly, we must trust in God's providence. Fourthly, we must trust his word. And fifthly, we 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 must make much of Christ and his cross. So let me just briefly go through each of those five and talk about how they're important for hallowing God's name. So firstly, I've said that we hallow God's name by speaking highly of God. And this is so crucially important because in the world around us, people speak flippantly and carelessly of God. People will often only ever speak the name of the Lord Jesus as as profanity. People will only use the name of God when they're saying, oh my G-O-D. And so it's a gasp of exclamation. People don't care about the name of God. And I mention this precisely because it's important for us as Christians to so esteem and value God's name that we only ever speak of him with reverence and love. After all, we are those who are told to address him as Father. And if he has stooped to be known by us in such intimacy and love, then we must respond with deep thankfulness and reverence. So at the most basic level, if we're going to hallow God's name, then we must take care to speak about him to other people in a way which demonstrates how greatly we love him, how greatly we honour him, and never speak about him carelessly or flippantly. God is far too serious. Secondly, we hallow God's name by worshipping him. Now, worship is the expression of our love for God. Now, it's not just an expression of our admiration for God. It's not just like we're paying God a compliment because God is so much greater than to be merely complimented by us. No, worship is the full expression of our heart's devotion to God. But here we have to be careful too, because we can fall into the trap of thinking that God can be just worshipped in any way that we want, that we can express our love for God in just any way that we choose. But God must be worshipped in the way that he has chosen And this shouldn't be particularly surprising because it's true in every aspect of life that we choose to serve people in the way that they want to be served. So if you love someone, you choose to express your love for them in ways that they will appreciate. So, for example, if I wanted to express my love to Lauren and make her delicious meal, 
if I choose something which I particularly love, say I said, I'm going to make, Lauren, a goat's cheese and red onion pizza. To me, that would be a thing of beauty, a thing of outstanding culinary um, delight. But Lauren would be repulsed even by the thought of it. And so the point is that when we come to God, we approach him in the same way. We've got to approach him on the basis that he wants to be approached. Uh, and so we look at a simple service like this that the Lord Jesus has requested, where we need to remember him, to take the bread and wine, to pray, and hopefully in the not too distant future, to sing together. Now, it seems so simplistic. It seems so foolish almost. Where's the glitz? Where's the glamour? Where's the pomp and ceremony? We might think to ourselves, well, we're coming to the King of Kings. Well, you get, get the orchestra out. Get a, a beautiful, big, grand building that is, that is suitable for the gods that we're coming to worship. Get the, the robes on so that everything is fitting for this great and, and grand God. But if we present to God the things that he has not asked for, then we risk presenting God with things that actually don't hallow his name. And this is really important because after Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 presented an unauthorized offering of worship to God, God struck them down and Moses then said to his brother Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Or we could use the word hallowed. Among those who are near me, I will be hallowed. And the point there is that God expects to be sanctified, he expects to be hallowed, not by our own imaginations of how he would like to be hallowed, but by how he has chosen to be hallowed by us. And this isn't arbitrary, but rather God wants to be worshipped in such a way that displays his character to the world around. And sometimes that just baffles our imaginations. We want the glitz and glamour and pomp and ceremony. But God chooses to be worshipped with simplicity in spirit and truth. As Thomas Watson says, the Puritan writer, it is the purity of worship that God loves better than the pomp. And that's exactly why we choose to worship in simplicity. Thirdly, we hallow God's name by trusting in his providence. Now the people in the world around us, they live their lives as, everything, as if everything is just random, you know, by chance. Occasionally, People will talk about fate or karma. We'll try to cling on to something that would inject some sense of purpose or meaning into their lives. But as Christians, we believe that our lives and the whole world around us isn't by accident or chance, but it's ruled by the hand of a good and gracious God who does everything for our good and according to what he wants. And so this means that we shouldn't grumble at God about our lot in life. And when the people of Israel in Numbers chapter 14, grumbled against God in the desert, in the wilderness. God was angry with them and decreed that everyone over the age of 20 years and upwards would die in the wilderness and they would wander in the desert there for 40 years, precisely because such grumbling did not hallow God's name. Such grumbling dishonored God and made God look nasty, made God look foolish. It doesn't reveal his holiness. But of course, in previous weeks, I've talked about the importance of lament in the Christian life. How does lament fit in with the providence of God? 
can we lament and not grumble against God? Well, I think we can actually, because in lament what we do is we go to God with our sorrow and pour out our hearts to God, trusting in God, even though we don't understand him. But grumbling does the opposite of that. Instead of taking sorrow to God, it nurses sorrow. And instead of going to God in trust, it turns away from God and says that God will not provide for us. And so that's the difference between lament and grumbling. Lament goes to God in our sorrow, whereas grumbling goes away from God in discontent. And so even in the most difficult circumstances of life, we must hallow God's name by trusting that what he is doing is good, even if we don't understand it. And even if the very worst thing should happen to us, we choose to trust in God and hallow his name. As Thomas Watson again puts it, when the world sees how entirely his people love him, that they will even die in his service, it exalts and honours his name. Because people see how much his people really love him. Fourthly, we hallow God's name by trusting in his word. When the world sees people who revere this book as the very words of God and build their lives on it rather than anything else, then that hallows God's name. The world looks at many things in this book and scorns them as foolish, but God chooses to hallow his name by his people trusting and proclaiming this word and building their lives upon it. In Romans chapter 4, Paul describes how God told Abraham that he would have a son. And obviously this was completely implausible because Abraham was an old man, his wife Sarah was an old woman. The idea that they would have a son was just completely ridiculous. And anybody looking on would have said it was completely ridiculous as well. But Paul says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 20, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, fully convinced that he was able, that God was able to do what he had promised. Notice that it says that as he grew strong in his faith, he gave glory to God. Now, I don't think that what Paul is saying here is that Abraham was doing two separate things, that he was growing strong in his faith and giving glory to God. I think rather what Paul is saying here was that as he grew strong in his faith and trusted in God's word, that gave glory to God. Because he was saying that God is reliable, God is trustworthy. All I've got is what God says, but I'm going to trust in it. And that made God look reliable and glorious. And similarly for us, when we build our lives upon the word of God, who says that he made the world from nothing, who said that he entered the world in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, when he says in his word that he raised his son from the dead, and when he says in his word that he will raise up us up from the dead too, when he says in his word that the Lord Jesus Christ will come again, the world looks at those things and says, those are just completely ridiculous. How implausible that, that a man would come from heaven and in the future, in glory, and transform this world? It, it all just seems so completely ridiculous. And yet, when we build our lives on these things, we hallow God's name by showing that God is glorious. 
And he's not glorified by our attempts to make him more plausible. He's glorified by our simple trust in his word. Fifthly and finally, we hallow God's name by making much of his son and his cross. You see, God's supreme revelation of his holiness is found in what we've been celebrating this morning. The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, in a real historical person, God himself entered the world to display his holiness. And so Hebrews 1 can say he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so as those who seek to hallow God's name and make much of God's name, we make much of his son. We make much of what he did at the cross and we tell others about that because if others want to see the holiness of God, then they've got to see the Lord Jesus. And there at the cross, what the Lord Jesus did was to manifest how God's love for sinful men and his justice against sin can both be satisfied. Here the true nature of God is seen in all of its brightness. And God's holiness then shines at the cross like nowhere else. And that's why if we want God's name to be hallowed, to be seen as holy, we need to point people to the cross Because that's where they're going to see it most clearly and most beautifully. And so in conclusion, as those who have been made holy, we want to hallow God's name in the midst of this world. You see, the problem is that God's name has been and continues to be defiled and profaned and treated with utter contempt. And because we love him, Because we've been brought into a relationship with this God and we know what he's really like. This hurts us. We hate to see him treated in this way. And that's why then at the outset of the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught to his disciples, he's asking them to make God's concern their own concern. He's asking them that they would seek the hallowing of God's name. But... This isn't us asking God to hallow his name separately from us, as if we don't matter to God's purpose. No, in God's redemptive purpose, the reason why he has left us here and has made us his holy people is so that we might be the vehicle through which God's name is hallowed, so that people might, through us, See, the value of God's word, his promises, his plan of redemption, his character, all of this is seen through us. And so this is a weighty thing to pray. May God help us to pray it. May God help us, most of all, to live in such a way that his name is hallowed through us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God. We ask then that you would hallow your name. May your name be hallowed and held in esteem throughout the world. And we thank you that the very reason why you've left us here in this world is to be the vehicles through which your holiness might be displayed. What a solemn responsibility this is for us. That we who feel so frail, who are 
jars of clay, mere earthen vessels, should be the vehicles through which your holiness is displayed. O oh Lord God, help us to display your holiness. And yet we thank you that that's exactly what you've helped us do this morning. Thank you that this morning we've been able to meet and to testify to your holiness. We declare, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes by taking these simple emblems and rejoicing in the holiness displayed at the cross. Grant that as we do this, that others would be amazed by your holiness, Lord God, and that they would turn to the Lord Jesus and find him to be a great saviour. We pray that you would help us increasingly in the days to come to find ways of displaying your holiness to the world around us by telling them the gospel, telling them of how great you are so that your name would be revered and so that through us you will be hallowed. And so we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.